Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. From vaccines to elections and an economic recovery, 2021 is set to be another big year for Latin America. How optimistic should we be? I think we will see potentially a huge boom in consumption. I think we will see uh, perhaps a huge boom in innovation and creativity. And my hope is for all of us, but for Latin American nations, that they take advantage of that. But as you rebuild, can you rebuild in a better, broader, more diversified way? If you live in Latin America, if you follow Latin America, you are glad that it is 2021, that the calendar year has changed. And at least in theory, we are leaving that awful 2020 behind. It was a year that saw the region home to a third of the world's known deaths from COVID-19. It was also home to some of the worst uh, economic damage associated with the pandemic. 2021, you know, nobody's expecting any miracles, but the year does look at least somewhat better. This is the year where vaccines should really roll out. We've already seen them start around Christmas time in places like Mexico, Costa Rica, and elsewhere. We're expecting an economic recovery, although it will be more meager than some would want. There will also be challenges and opportunities for cooperation with the new administration taking office in Washington, with Joe Biden becoming the next president of the United States. So lots of trends, lots of things to look at as the year starts. And joining me today on the podcast to talk about all of this, my friend Shannon O'Neill. Shannon is the vice president and senior fellow for Latin America at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also a member of AQ's editorial board. Shannon, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So look, there's no miracles with the switch in calendar year. But as we look ahead, you know, the IMF is forecasting 3.6% growth in, in 2021 across Latin America as a whole. What are you expecting? I mean, economically, politically, sort of the big picture view, what kind of year do you think this is going to be for the region? So I wish I could start off a bit more optimistic, but I think this is going to be a tough year. Probably not as tough as 2020, um, but 2021 is going to be a tough year economically because I do think that growth will be hard fought and slower than many hope. Politically, it's going to be a year of ups and downs as we have a lot of elections on the schedule. It's one of those super cycle years where we have a number of presidential elections, lots of midterm elections that will uh, bring in new legislative branches and the like. Uh, And we have some big issues, for instance, in Chile, sort of trying to figure out what a constitutional reform looks like, what a constituent assembly looks like, and what's on the plate. I think there's a lot on the table. And the change that a lot of Latin Americans are looking for, um, both just in their day-to-day lives, getting out of their house and out of lockdowns of various ways, shapes, and forms, is going to come slower than many have hoped. You know, Shannon, when we look at vaccine rollout region-wide right now for 2021, How are you feeling about where the region stands compared to other parts of the world? I mean, is there a reason to be relatively hopeful? And I I say this recognizing that, you know, the the response to the pandemic itself in 2020 didn't, you know, didn't unfortunately inspire a lot of confidence in most countries. The vaccine rollout, I think, will be different in different countries and somewhat uneven. And there's a lot of reasons here. One is some countries have access to the vaccine and others don't. So we have countries like Brazil that it looks like so far at least really haven't 
haven't been able to get their hands on the hundreds of millions of doses that they're going to need. And lots of these companies have sold out, frankly. So you know, developed countries, wealthier countries have, have gone and bought up what's being produced. So there's a challenge, first of just getting that vaccine. The next big issue, and this is an issue in every country, and we're seeing it a bit in the United States right now, um, but the next big issue will be getting it to the people and getting it distributed. And here, as I look across Latin America, I, I think we will see distribution that will go fairly well in urban areas, um, and that will go fairly well with the upper classes and the upper middle classes. Um, but once you get past that 20, 25% of the population, that's pretty easy to get to um, and is wealthier and is demanding it. Do you see the political will? Do you see the resources? And do you see the capability to roll out and make sure that that broader 80, 90% of the population is inoculated, which is what people like Dr. Fauci say needs to happen for, for herd immunity. So that part is going to be slower. And I think in part, it is a logistical challenge. How do you get especially a vaccine that needs to remain cold? How do you distribute it to small clinics uh, or get it across all of these different networks um, that either don't have the type of refrigerators that are needed, they don't have the healthcare workers that know how to inoculate? And in some places, and this is Mexico is one of them, Central America is another, but other even Colombia and other places, and some they may also face the challenge of violence, of organized crimes, of others who control those territories. And can you actually get the vaccine into these places in in safe ways and get it to the broader population, not just to those who uh, are perhaps part of the cartels or or have paid some sort of fine, ransom, some they say piso in order to to get the vaccine. Well, and those those challenges that you just cited add to the fact that even under you know peaceful circumstances, it's hard. You can have a big healthcare system and and you know, decent government capacity and still struggle with with getting you know, all these new shots in arms. You know, I would just add to that, it just taking away from vaccines for a second. You know, one of Latin America's overall competitive challenges in the world is that logistics cost a lot. So you have some of the best you know, grain producers or other kinds of agricultural products or commodities, but the real cost is getting those goods to the ports and getting them out to world markets. So it just gives you a sense of the infrastructure challenges that other kinds of goods that bring big profits, um, you know, face. Latin America has a real distribution problem, infrastructure problem. And we see that in its markets and its economies and its products, but we're going to see that too. It's going to affect the vaccine distribution. Speaking of structural challenges, Shannon, before we get into kind of a country by country breakdown here, what what do you see as like the major structural impediments to faster growth? Because let's let's pause for just a moment and talk about how, you know, kind of unfortunately discouraging the, the picture is. Right now, the IMF expects that per capita GDP in Latin America will not get back to its pre-pandemic levels until 2025. And that is later than any other region in the world. And we're talking about you know, frankly, some of the same structural impediments that we've been talking about for the last decade, uh, the 2010s weren't great either, right? Uh, things like infrastructure, uh, investment being difficult and so on. But w- when you look at the big challenges out there besides logistics, which you just cited, what else is kind of foremost on your radar? One of the things when I look at Latin American economies, and obviously countries have, are, are very different in, in lots of ways, but one of the biggest challenges is the economic diversification of their economies. So we have a lot of countries that are dependent on 
a small number of perhaps natural resources or particular industries, um, but they don't have a lot of sort of depth and breadth to their economies. So if there's a downturn in one area, there aren't others that might pick up the slack. You don't see that economic diversification. And there's there's lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things where Latin America really hasn't hooked into, except for a few exceptions, hooked into global supply chains, except as a provider of raw materials. Um, they haven't been able to sort of climb the value chain and start in, in some places they can. And then some particular sectors and industries, you see this growth, but you haven't seen it to the extent that you've seen it in a lot of Asian economies where you start making the easy things and sewing on buttons and the like, and then you move up and all of a sudden you have the patents on synthetic fabrics that go all around the world. Latin America hasn't been the place for that. And you know, there's lots of historical reasons for that. There's lots of, of reasons. If you have all these, this bounty of natural resources, it's sometimes easier just to ship off the grain and the copper and the iron ore and the other things then then sort of work to to climb that ladder um, you have huge informal economies, so it makes it hard to have these companies expand and start up and become more productive. And you have a, a real challenge in many places on the human capital side, on the education, the like, for the 21st century rather than for the 20th century. So there's a whole lot of things here. But I think as I look at these economies, I think there's a real opportunity for governments to invest, but think about how do you diversify your economy? How do you allow new industries, new sectors, new elements and businesses to come in that aren't in sort of the, the dominant ones and allow your economy just to have a little a little protection or a little backup in case one sector goes by the wayside for international reasons, um, for commodity price reasons or whatever it is, um, allows you to rely on, on, on sort of a, a much broader array of economic activity. So let's talk about Mexico, which I know is your your main area of focus when you're looking at Latin America. How are we starting the year there? This is a country that has been hit incredibly hard by the pandemic. You know, the numbers are 100,000 plus people dead, but most people, in fact, even the even the official uh, officials in charge of all of this are saying that, yeah, there's probably more, but we're just not counting it. So, you know, probably much, much more severe consequences of COVID have hit that country. And this is a country uh, and a government, uh, the Lopez Obrador government, that has done almost nothing to try to stave off the economic damage, the business damage, the job damage, all of these things um, that would let people live sort of normal lives, or at least let people continue to to live lives and not be pushed into poverty and, and desperation. It's it's quite odd, really, um, when you look at other countries around the region have, have put in big stimulus packages. And of course, when we get to some of those, there's a real question about whether they can sustain those. But Mexico has done almost nothing. And we see that in the poverty numbers. We see that in the death toll. We see that in a lot of really um, desperate circumstances that so many people live under. And we're not seeing a big change. In, in, you know, as we go into 2021, there doesn't seem to be a big strategy. There doesn't seem to be any type of, of economic stimulus or anything to, to change the desperation that so many Mexicans are living under. We published a piece in America's Quarterly right before the holiday break from uh, Vanessa Rubio, the former Mexican senator uh, from the opposition, giving several reasons why 2021 might be the year that some of those negative trends actually, you know, have a negative impact on on President Lopez Obrador's popularity, which has been very resistant so far to, you know, slow economic growth and and the human tragedy caused by by COVID-19. I mean, what, what do you think of that? Because so far he's been pretty Teflon-like in terms of his own 
popularity. He's achieved that, of course, by by blaming the country's longtime political class that came before him for most of the ills he's facing now. What do you think? I mean, is this the year that dynamic changes? It may be the year that changes. And he has remained quite popular. And lots of people are talking about the Teflon presidency. But just to put it in a little bit of perspective, if you look back at some of his predecessors, you look at uh, Vicente Fox, who was president from 2000 to 2006. You look at Felipe Calderon, who was president from 2006 to 2012. Their popularity numbers two years in were not all that different than Lopez Obrador. Now, obviously, it's a different situation. And COVID is a much, much bigger deal than um, some of the things that those presidents were going through, though they they had their own scandals and issues and, and, and challenges. So, yes, he's very popular, but it's not out of the realm of previous presidents um, this far into their term, a third into their term. The other thing you're seeing is a real split in the polling about whether he's popular and how people feel the government is handling day-to-day issues, how they're handling the economy, how they're handling COVID. And there, the numbers have really eroded a lot. So he personally maintains this allure and and sort of aspirations for lots of Mexicans. But when they go and look at the management of government, when they look at things that are happening and the results that they're getting, there you've really seen, seen a slip. And that is important because one, it, there's a question about whether he can maintain this personal popularity if people are not so happy with what's happening in, in the country. But it also really matters because this is an electoral year for Mexico, and it's a really important election that's coming up uh, this summer in June that will elect the whole legislature, so the whole Congress. And that will really matter for López Obrador for the rest of his term, whether or not he maintains his majority or makes it bigger, or whether perhaps he loses that majority. And that would give him a lot less room room to do some of the domestic political things that he has been doing, and that we've seen a a big legislative push at the end of the year, some of that stuff would be stopped if he's not able to maintain a majority. Talk to me about what's happening on the security front in Mexico right now. It is grim. Um, the you know Lopez Obrador came in, and that was one issue that he campaigned on. The two biggest issues he campaigned on were reducing the violence and reducing corruption. And we have seen little movement, frankly, on both, um, but particularly on the violence side, on the security side. We're seeing record numbers of homicides, continuing uh, very high levels of robberies, of assaults, of kidnappings, of all the kind of ugly stuff um, that you uh, would hope that he would have dealt with. As importantly, you're not seeing a comprehensive security strategy come out of the government. Uh, They came out with this hugs, not bullets policy, though that seems to have gone by the wayside. And it's sort of hard to tell where they are in this. They have a new National Guard that they formed. That was going to be the big police force that was going to take these on, but it has not really developed. And so the military has really become the mainstay in these areas. And we haven't seen improvements in the numbers. So the day-to-day lives of people within Mexico in lots of different states and, and communities hasn't gotten better in terms of basic safety. The other thing that we've seen is we've seen Mexico over the last several weeks pull back from any kind of U.S.-Mexico security cooperation. So there's been lots of statements uh, by the foreign minister and others saying we need to rethink the Merit Initiative, which is the um, the set of policies where U.S.-Mexico cooperation, uh, security cooperation falls under. That's sort of the name, the umbrella that's given to it. Um, but we've also seen the Mexican Congress pass a law that would make U.S.-Mexico security cooperation really difficult to do. So I'm skeptical we're going to see a, an improvement come in 2021 on the on the security and violence side. When we look at Chile, of course, there's, there's two big votes. There's one in April, and then there's the presidential vote scheduled for 
November. That was a country that prior to the pandemic was kind of the main area of focus for a lot of us, just because of the protests that erupted in October 2019 that were such a big surprise. Where do you see that story standing now? And, you know, do you think we get through to the other side of this with a, you know, with a government and a constitution that will be able to address some of these, these big issues that the middle class was upset about, you know, before even the pandemic started? I am somewhat optimistic about Chile in the sense that they're struggling with their challenges in a very constitutional and methodical democratic way. Uh, So we saw big protests a year and a half ago, a million plus people out on the street in a country that has less than 20 million people. And the way that they've gone to deal with this is not, you know, many governments within a few weeks, the way we saw perhaps in Peru, not, you know, a lot of populists from the outside, at least not yet, but instead, you know, quite methodical and and this focus on going through a process to reform the constitution. So Shannon, you mentioned Peru. Uh, and Peru is a country that, you know, is just so bewildering. <laughs> Sometimes in terms of its politics, uh, you know, it's a country that had three presidents in the span of uh, just 10 days uh, at one point in, in 2020. Only Argentina beats it on that, you know, in the past. <laughs> yeah. You know, unlike Argentina back then, uh, as everyone on Wall Street certainly never gets tired of repeating, somehow the economy seems immune. And I have publicly wondered if, like, how long that story will last. I mean, how long can a country remain economically healthy while the politics are so volatile? Peru has done that now for many years. But as we look at this election for 2021, you know, you see some candidates that could potentially take the economy in a different direction. I mean, how how are you feeling about Peru right now as you as you look at this election? It's hard to see how how the politics solidifies, how the things that you think about in democracy, political parties and representation and stability, none of that is happening in Peru. And it hasn't happened for a long time. And there's there's no evidence that's going to happen in this election coming up or, or the ones to follow, right? There's lots of, lots of different personalities, but not a lot of political parties in, in this mix. You know, what's been different, I would say, and not to compare Peru and Argentina all that much, but but these two moments of lots of presidents within just a couple of weeks. In Peru, you've seen lots of personalities and presidents and, and political figures, um, but you've seen pretty much one economic policy across, you know, populists or, or more established uh, figures and the like. In Argentina, that populist turmoil or the lots of different personalities and politics had very different economic policies. And we've seen that, you know, between sort of just in the last 10 years with, with the Macri side and versus the, the Peronist side, right? Um, and that so far in Peru, we've seen pretty stable economic consensus, even as they fight vociferously over other sort of political things. So I guess the real question is when we see that this next round come up, I don't expect the political system or the political parties to get any stronger. I think the weakness that we've seen will continue. Uh, the turmoil, the weaponization of corruption that we've seen to, to go after your opponents and playing a little bit fast and loose with, with these rules and norms and the like, I think that will continue. You know, it's, you look at that field of candidates right now and it, it seems like there's 
there's there's something for everybody. Uh, you know, there's there's a there's an outsider candidate who's who's really you know from one of Peru's uh, let's put it this way a well known family. Um, you know, Forsyth, the the young thirty something mayor. Uh, you have Guzman, who's the you know kind of the the centrist who who would seem to indicate a, a status quo approach on the economy. Uh, Keiko Fujimori's likely to be a candidate again. Uh, and then, you know, you, you have Veronica Mendoza from the left, who who would probably be based on kind of what I, I've been able to tell the candidate who would potentially be most disruptive from an economic point of view, although it remains to be seen you know, exactly what kind of leader she'd be. So there's 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 a lot to choose from. And it's 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 pretty unpredictable sitting here now. Indeed. And, you know, we have seen across the history of Latin America, you've seen some left political leftists who have become economically centrist that have been able to guide their countries in ways that people from from a much more kind of conservative space can't um, because they aren't engaging in these broader issues of of you know the needs of the population of how you deal with poverty of how you create a bigger middle class and the like the two kinds of candidates that have succeeded most in in politics and here I'm not even going to say Latin America because we're seeing this elsewhere around the world are you know the outsider, uh, who of course sometimes is not really an outsider. Take the case of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who you know had been in Congress for I think twenty eight years at that point. Um, and then there's a second mold, which I suppose is more specific to South America, which is the leader who explicitly or implicitly uh, promises to take things back to that age of glory that was the two thousands with the commodities boom, and that's kind of the dynamic we're seeing in Ecuador. Right where you have a candidate um, who's directly associated with with Rafael Correa, uh, kind of promising to to bring things back to to those golden times, and of course it's not that easy. And well, and as you say, this is this is all around the world, right? The "Make America Great Again" is hearkening back to some time that it's hard to know when that was, but right, this idea of bringing it back, both an outsider and promising to bring back to some mythical America that was better off for some people. So, you know, I think the challenge we see in so many of these countries in Latin America is that the political systems over the last twenty plus years, the political parties have frayed and fragmented and, and frankly disappeared. Uh, and, you know, a lot of Americans have great terms for this. You know, one is light bulb parties that you turn them on for the election and then you turn them off right after or changing shirts. You know, they have all these ideas, but but it fundamentally allows people to come in from the outside and also lets them get away on the campaign trail without putting any real policies forward without really talking about anything. Uh, and that's why I think you get these big promises to go back to to some past time Let's talk a little bit about Argentina. I mean, this is another country that, you know, again, there's there's a lot of discussion about the past. It was certainly implicit in Alberto Fernandez's economic message. What are you hearing right now? I mean, I, I, is there any, it was obvious, it was a very tough year for them. I mean, in some ways among the big countries, Argentina and Mexico were the ones that suffered most economically. In 2020, Peru was you know, had a tough time as well. Any reason for optimism on that one? I'm worried about Argentina as we head into 2021. They have uh, a big negotiation with the IMF coming up that they need to resolve in the next number of months to roll over the debt. They have almost $50 billion of debt with the IMF. So that's going to be a really difficult negotiation with the, for them. And the deal that they made with the private creditors last year in 2020 seems to be falling apart, or at least the 
people are quite disappointed with with the promises that were made or the the suggestions of how they're going to run the economy. And the economy isn't recovering. Inflation continues and, and looks to get stronger. So the economic side, you're not seeing a lot of the green shoots that one would expect. Um, but the other thing that you're seeing glimmers of, or even more than glimmers, is political infighting within the Paranus. So, you know, lots of people, when Alberto Fernandez was coming to the presidency, were wondering the role that uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, his vice president, was going to play. And right now, it seems the two of them, she's making her move to to take over power. Um, so you're so you're starting to see her role in the Congress and the strengthening of the Congress and the Congress really calling the shots. Okay, so now we've set the table. We've talked a little bit about you know the region as a whole. We've gone a little bit country by country. And now I want to kind of introduce the new dynamic on this, which will be a change of administration in Washington. You know, Joe Biden knows Latin America uh, probably better than any incoming U.S. president in recent memory. He, uh, he, he traveled to the region 16 times when he was vice president under Barack Obama. But the, the, the outlook is tough. Now, as we kind of go case by case, like even some of the personal relationships are, you know, potentially difficult. And, you know, I want to ask you about the potential dynamic between Lopez Obrador and Biden, because it, it looks even based on this recent uh, offer by by Lopez Obrador to you know, potentially offer political asylum to Julian Assange, the, the WikiLeaks founder. Um, that sure looks like an attempt to to kind of poke the bear in a way that, by the way, he he seemed to avoid doing with Donald Trump. Yeah, it's fascinating. You've seen steps over the last six weeks or so of the Mexican government poking the bear, at least the next bear. So they passed a security law that would make it really difficult for the DEA and others to operate there. That He didn't recognize uh, President-elect Biden's victory for many weeks. Um, and now he's he's offered political asylum to Julian Assange. So yeah, there does definitely seems to be there um, this, this attempt to sort of stand up to the U.S. or push back uh, before anything has happened. And you know what's interesting, and this is for Mexico, but for Latin America more generally, is as I look back at the four years of the Trump administration with Mexico and, and Latin America, it was a really thin agenda and, and not a lot going on. So the Trump administration really cared about migration and, and keeping migrants out. So that was a big part of it and mostly focused on Mexico and Central America, though a little bit with Venezuela. They cared a little bit about security issues. So they cared about eradication in of, of drugs in Colombia and the like. But otherwise, it was sort of a hodgepodge and, and pretty light agenda. None of the issues that are usually on the U.S. Latin America agenda. Um, and I think we're going to see that come back with the Biden administration. It's going to be one, a much more institutional relationship. So rather than being run out of the White House, it's going to be run out of all the different agencies that have an interest from Department of State to Homeland Security. Um, and the other thing, I think we're going to see a much more values led foreign policy. So democracy is going to return. Checks and balance is going to return. Human rights is going to return. Climate change issues are going to be on the agenda. All these things are going to be there. And so many in Latin America, we'll celebrate that. The United States is coming back and there's going to be an anti-corruption agenda and these things will come back, which have been pushed to the side, um, but not Lopez Obrador and not Mexico. I think Mexico is quite happy to have a free reign to do Lopez Obrador to do what he wanted to do, to not have things institutionalized. Um, that served him quite well and, and fit his personality as well as his own domestic political agenda that Trump really only cared about migrants and left everything else aside. So I, I think AMLO is... Uh, anticipating a very 
prickly relationship and is sort of starting it off that way by by some of these moves, the latest one being the Julian Assange political asylum. You know, another area where U.S.-Mexico cooperation is really critical is migration, um, both Mexican migration and Central American migration. Now, President-elect Biden, he's promised to reverse what he's described as the Trump administration's inhumane immigration policies, but it's a complicated dynamic because this was another one where AMLO was was really helping Trump out. How do you expect that one to evolve? So that one is going to be difficult. And and yes, Biden has talked about changing it, and I think we will see changes. Um, but you still have to deal with with the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that, that are on the move and are quite desperate. And the U.S. system, especially after four years of Trump, the whole migration system is, is more fragile than it was before. And so they just don't have the capacity to deal with it. So you are going to see the U.S. government working, the Mexican government and the Central American governments to try to slow those flows. I do actually think, as I look at, at the other parts of the U.S.-Mexico agenda, we look at you know, democratic checks and balances, you look at reaching out to civil society, you look at the protection of journalists, you look at the issues of climate change or human rights in the military, those are going to be really difficult issues uh, with the AMLO government. Migration, I think there is a space where you could find some sort of agreement or area for cooperation. And one, there there was long cooperation over Central American migrants with Mexico before Trump. We saw that in 2014 when there was a surge of Central American migrants who came to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, you saw U.S.-Mexico cooperation. So there's there's a history of that. Because of that history, there's more of an apparatus for it in terms of capacity and the like. So I think there may be an agenda where both Lopez Obrador and, and Biden um, will want together to slow the movement of people. What I do think is you're going to see a very different way of doing it. And here, Biden on the campaign trail has already talked about investing billions of dollars uh, in Central America to address the root causes, to make it easier for people to make the choice to stay. And that is something that Lobos Obrador, at least on his campaign trail and, and while in office, has talked about, even if it hasn't yet happened. So these are all big issues, Shannon. Uh, you know, but let's let's move on. Let's let's talk about Venezuela. You know, the dynamic has really shifted there over the last year. Uh, Juan Guaido, who was the internationally recognized interim president, uh, you know, he's really seen his influence uh, fade. Can we expect any significant change in the U.S. approach to Venezuela now as we enter this year? It's hard to see the constructive path forward. We may see a shift to focus again on trying to rally a multilateral approach versus a more unilateral one. I could see the U.S. administration reaching out to the Europeans, reaching out to Norway, reaching to others to perhaps broker some sort of talks. Um, I'm skeptical that those go very far uh, as Maduro has found a way through uh, incredible repression and and violence, frankly, to uh, increase his control over the situation in Venezuela. And one difference I think you will see is the Biden administration spending much more time focusing on the humanitarian crisis. So whether it's granting uh, temporary protected status to Venezuelans that are here in the United States, sending money and and uh, galvanizing an international effort to help the migrants who have left Venezuela and who are stranded on the borders in Colombia or other places and help just the humanitarian crisis that's happening. There, I think you could see a bit of a change in policy. But those are policies to deal with the effects of the Maduro regime. I think it's going to be very hard for the Biden administration to bring significant political change there. 
So Cuba is one that, that is, you know, obviously very important to a lot of people, including the you know voters in South Florida that received so much attention after the election result on November 3rd. Uh, you know, do you think we're going to see something as simple as, as rolling things back to the kind of Cuba policies that we saw in the final years of the Barack Obama administration? Or do you think it'll be more complicated than that? I think you'll see a rollback to a good number of those policies. And, you know, what we learned with this election is that you can lose Florida and Cuba doesn't matter as much electorally in the United States. There's less of an electoral barrier than there has been in the past. So Cuba, I think we see some rollback. The other side, though, is there's so many issues on the Biden administration's docket, um, many of them domestic so I don't see Cuba holding a huge place within the overall list of priorities for Biden as he comes in in 2021. Well, and speaking of the big priorities, that kind of leads me to my final question. I've left this one for for last. Um, Brazil, and particularly where it regards, you know, environmental policy, climate change and the Amazon. Now, you know, I follow this one pretty closely and, and the atmospherics around that relationship so far, they don't look good. Uh, there's already been some jawing back and forth. Are those two going to be able to come to an understanding in a way that, you know, leaving the sort of the theatrics of diplomacy aside, that results in like less deforestation in the Amazon? That will depend on the Brazilians. What you will see throughout Biden's domestic policy, but his foreign policy for every country, not just Brazil, is you're going to see a focus on climate change. And if you go to the Biden-Harris transition website, there's a little you know, toggle at the top right-hand corner, and there's four issues that they say these are the four big priorities for his administration. And one is you know, COVID relief, one is economic recovery, uh, I think one is job creation, and the other is climate change. So the fact that those are the only four issues that are up there, that tells you something about what this administration is going to be about. And they're not alone. You look at what the Europeans have been focused on over the last year through the COVID crisis and the like, they too are doubling down on you know, a green economy, on, on climate change issues and the like. So you're going to find like-minded governments around the world focus on this. So Brazil is going to have a really tough time. It's not just going to be the Biden administration. It's going to be the European Union as well, where they're waiting for that um, EU Mercosur deal to go through. And if if the Bolsonaro government is not able to or not willing to reduce the deforestation, I don't see that agreement ever coming into fruition either. So um, can they find some sort of middle ground? Maybe. Um, but not if Bolsonaro finds it or believes it to be electorally popular as he goes uh, trying to build his base for a second term to continue the deforestation. After talking all this through, Shannon, we've covered a lot of ground, but 2021 does seem pretty complicated <laughs> now, that, now, that, now that we've gone through it. You know, the one thing I would say, and I think this is going to happen in the United States and I think it's going to happen other places, is that as the vaccine rolls out, as more and more people uh, can go out and work and consume and go to restaurants and go without worries of a deadly disease hitting them, I think we will see potentially a huge boom in consumption. I think we will see uh, perhaps a huge boom in innovation and creativity and sort of the creative destruction that you know economists and Schumpeter used to talk about. I think there's a space for for this renewal. Um, and you know, my hope is for all of us, but for Latin American nations, that they take advantage of that. You know, there was crumbling and there's things that have that have been destroyed. But as you rebuild, can you rebuild in a better, broader, more diversified way? 
Here's to that. If it was New Year's Eve, I'd, I'd be raising a glass of champagne. And But a, a good note to end on. And Shannon, you know, as always, really appreciate your time. I look forward to having you back on the podcast again soon. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Leonie Rawls. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.